0: Hello, and welcome to Artbox d I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I talk to Michelle Jeff. Michelle is an interdisciplinary artist who creates installations of sculptures, sound, and performative videos. Her environments that she creates offers opportunities for viewers to shift their attitudes and experiences to new connections. We talked about her installation, Wappenfield, her influence of Asian art, and how she got started down her path into her work. So sit back, relax, enjoy the interview. Thank you again for doing this. I appreciate it. And if you can tell me about yourself and how did you get into the wonderful world of inter inter work? I could say the word, but I can't now. So...
1: I know. Interdisciplinary. right? Yeah, it's you. a bit of a mouthful.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, just, you know, incrementally, you know, the way things do. Um, I moved to New York thinking I was a painter. That took some years to figure out that I, in fact, was really not a painter. And I moved here. I only had one friend here. And I've been living abroad for like nine years. My family was elsewhere, quite far away. And so you have your jobs and you, you figure it out. Right. Right. So in between, you know, it took a little while to sort of figure out that I wasn't a painter and I just kept, you know, kept painting away and whatever. And then at one point I got into um, designing women's hats and that was totally a surprise. A short story there, you know, one of the galleries I worked for owed me a lot of money by the time I walked out and I had like $18 left. Basically, I had to rethink how I was re re, redo. Anyway, I had made these painted baskets and I started to think about them and off I went. It's like Alice in Wonderland. You just fall in and and you don't emerge for years. So that's kind of what happened to me. And as a process of getting involved in that, I mean, I really went nuts. I mean, I started a hat business. I got involved. I mean, I sold to Bird Horse, Barneys, Bendles. I designed for Donna Karen. I mean, it was a thing. Yeah. And nothing I ever planned on or ever imagined or anticipated. But one day I was setting up at uh, one of these trade shows, you know, because they seemed like they were de rigueur to get more sales, you know. And there I was, I'd set up and I looked out onto the other, you know, other people in their booths and, and I swung around and I looked at mine and I had that, aha moment where i thought you should never make another painting again you're a sculptor it, it, that had never occurred to me not not in a million years that it occurred to me that okay. um and i also came from a family that did not really did not encourage me doing anything like this so there was that moment and i'm like wow and i never made another painting again and i kept making these super super sculptural forms And then, uh, you know, eventually I was able to download the uh, design job and my business. And then, then, you know, at that point, I really knew I wanted to make sculpture. Having made no sculpture, you just do it. You know, you, you just start making stuff and one thing leads to the next. And I always find that work, tells you where it wants to go or where you need to go.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I always try to step out of my own way to just follow where I'm being taken because usually it's somewhere somewhat uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's how I got into making sculpture. And the interdisciplinary part comes because I think I was making dinner one evening after the studio and I think my husband was listening to something and this music, this piece came over the news or whatever. and. I thought, oh, I know exactly what that is. And I last remembered it, like when I was six or something. And I thought, wow, you know, you have really strong oral recall. And I think I've been thinking about how to make the sculpture more, 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 (laughs) more dimensional, more physical, more. I probably along the way, remember, you know, Clearly, I'd been exposed to Richard Serra and the huge tilted arcs and those things. And that whole complete body experience was something that really compelled me and really interested in me. And I think I thought that sound would be something where I could do that. And then that took me into, you know, combining sculpture and sound. And then that led to the video work and the full-on installations, which are experiential. I hate using the word immersive now that, you know, the whole immersive van Gogh, which yeah. I'm really loathe. Um, I'm sure I understand why people like it, but
2: yeah.
1: as an artist, I find it a painful experience. But anyway, so, but that very all-encompassing kind of experience. Yeah. So that, that's how I got into all that kind of more or less Cribnone step step-by-step. So, yeah.
0: So how uh, did Asian art
1: influence your work? Well, I grew up in a family where my father's family lived in Shanghai in his youth. Yeah. And so my grandparents, when they came to the States, they brought a lot of Asian things with them. hmm You know, we had this beautiful Asian scroll that hung at my parents' home, and uh, my grandparents had a lot of Asian things in their home. And I think it's my first real visual imprint. I don't remember going to museums with my parents really until maybe I was 7, 10, Something in that range, you know, the National Gallery in Washington, because we lived in Maryland at that time. So I remember very much going there. And I remember my brother getting a poster or something. (laughs) But I think my, I know my visual imprint was Asian. And my mother had purchased, you know, those little flat, low, um... Vases for Ikebana.
2: Oh, yeah. Right.
1: So, those ones that are kind of like this and the little thing which you could press the branches in. So, we had a couple of those, and I ended up making these every week. I'd make these Asian Ikebana type branch flower arrangements things for our bathroom. And I don't think I even knew it was called Ikebana. Yeah. But there was something very, you know, very, you know, just very balanced and. Anyway, I was into it, and apparently, I once entered a flower contest when I was young. And I made one of those, and I said to my mother, apparently, she told me years later, I said, Well, I won't win. They won't understand it. That one over there, that one's going to win, but I don't care. Yeah. I like mine, and I know it's okay.
2: <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but
1: you know, so I know that the Asian thing was super important for me. And I, when I started to try to write an artist statement, I, understood that Asia had a lot of influence for me and that I I think of it as distilled and an economy of means. I guess the definition of poetry, or at least what poetry was considered in the past, where nothing was extraneous, everything needed to be there or the haiku of something or just, just you know, I keep doing this little move, but, (laughs) you know, just that Yeah. Nothing more than you need. Nothing extraneous. And ideally everything is mutually supporting of each other. Right. So every medium supports the other. Nothing is superfluous. Yeah. And each one underpins the other.
0: So you could say that you kind of feng shui of of things at an early age.
1: I guess so. I think so. I mean, I don't, I didn't even know what feng shui was until I was, you know, probably 30 plus. Yeah. But I, I think so. I mean, I think that that, was something I understood just intuitively. I'm not a two-dimensional person, so by no means do I think I could do an Asian scroll? Yeah, but yeah, I yeah. love them. You know, I love that expression. I love that tilted plane. I like i I like the whole thing,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah they are very beautiful, and it's like very patient, yeah. too. You know, it's a very patient sure. approach to paint that. You know, you can't rush into that,
1: you know? I think. Most art is patient in its own way, except for unless you're like, you know, really, you know, which one can do. But I don't know, you know, whatever. We can all spill our guts, I suppose, whether it's in paint or now we have the latitude to do whatever, right? I mean, because everything is so free in art. But um, I do think that there's a lot of process one way or another in various different ways of making
0: so Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. It's like yeah. you can you can find a path or you can choose a path or a path finds you and you just and, and like you said earlier, you just you let it talk to you and you started going down that path. And it seems like you have not stopped walking down it. So No, I
1: I'm
0: kind of yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm kind of stuck. <laughs> yeah,
1: well then once the genie got out of the bottle, it took a while, but once the genie got out of the bottle, I think it just
0: yeah. 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 Why or what got you into exploring the mental and emotional states along with social, linguistic, abnormally, and malfunction mirrored in society? that's that's. A well,
1: yeah, that is a lot, but yeah. I again, I mean, so at some point there was a juncture I had a three day a week gig, and I could really start the work on another level. Mm-hmm. Um, I always found the five day a week gig really crushing. but three. <laughs> gave me a lot of time to like really go deep. And so there I was. And I, at this point I had a lot of experience with designing and I earned my living as a designer and with many different kinds of designing and different materials. And I thought I need to bring everything I've learned into this space. You know, there is no rule, there's no whatever, but just whatever I can bring in here should come in. And It's not like formally they immediately started to show, you know, like obvious design things, but I I don't know. Maybe that's not true. What emerged were these things to do with clothing Hmm. and they were odd, you know? And I'm like, Whoa, do I even show these to anyone? You know, but again, I think that when you feel uncomfortable about something, it's exactly where you need to keep going.
2: Hmm. At least for me, Hmm. they
1: were sort of like majorette suits, bathing suits, a onesie, uh, all these things. And then they moved more into an undergarment kind of thing. And they really kind of took off. Mm. Then I started to make them in metal and aluminum, and I was riveting them, and they became volumetric. The work right before that was very labor-intensive. I was doing this rubber stuff and whatever. You know, you had to be in a mask, and I'm like, all right, that's it, I'm done. I want different way of working. And uh, there I was, and I made these things for a couple of years. And I realized that clothing, I thought it tipped our hand. In other words, we think that we're identifying with a group or with a logo, or if we get this haircut, we kind of look like this, or we belong to this group. If we wear this logo or this Brooks Brothers thing, or if we get piercings and tats everywhere. We belong to this group. And we start to try to self proclamate in a way, mm-hmm. not only self-identify, but also to tell the world who we are and who we belong to. And of course, Americans are really big on this. Oh, and yes. We really feel the need. Oh, yes. You know? More than almost any other group country that I can think of. But I think there's, you know, like everything, there's the flip side of that. And there's what's it telling other people that we don't even know it's revealing about us. So I found that super interesting. I really thought of all of it as being psychologically charged. And I thought of clothing as our shelter Mm -hmm. and our housing that then starts to imply architecture. And so I just kept going with that. I'd also done 12 years of Jungian analysis. That's clearly in the mix somewhere. It was a rich vein to mine. And I think I'm still really interested in that kind of thing. And then I found myself moving. Then the clothing was a, sort of dealing, at least in the metal work, like with the notion of armor, literally, because many pieces were made in metal. Yeah. And then that armoring thing, you know, then that led me to Wappenfield, which instead of doing sculpture that implied the body, now I thought, okay, I'm going to do something to do with the head. And I don't know if that's because I'd made hats for many years or if it just made sense. I don't know if it's because, you know, one's subconscious is working all the time. And I conceived of Oppenfield in 2003, but I live in lower Manhattan. So 2001 or 9-11 was a big deal. Oh, yes. you know. Oh, yes. A very big deal. I would never have said... Until many years later, a friend of mine said it to me, and I really pooh pooed it. But then I really, I agreed with her in the end that I think Boppenfield for me was a very long, deep meditation on 9-11. Hmm. And as I said, so I moved to the helmets, and the helmets were originally conceived as one huge helmet. So instead of you walking into a museum or a gallery, and you had the blackout curtains, and you walked into the dark room, why not make? dark room and walk into that sculpture yeah right which I still love that idea you know and you could have walked into that curved arch shape you would have been inside it you would have been able to see it from the outside as well and where the eye portal would be that would video would have gone across there but the problem that I was having at the time is um how was I gonna build that
2: yeah how was I gonna
1: finance that how was I gonna do any of that I mean Was not, nor am I still showing it goes in or something like that, where money is not exactly a problem. So I, I kind of sat with it for a while. I made 3D renderings of it, so I had a visual of it. Um, I made small-scale samples of it. I knew exactly what its scale was. I knew exactly how I was going kind to of, kind of build it. And then I wrote grants for years, yeah. years. And I got grants incrementally, and I got two magnificent New York State Council on the Arts Grant, shout out New York State <laughs> Council. We love you. Yes, uh, yes, truly, we do. We do. I mean, truly, deeply indebted to them. And over time, I was able to, you know, get enough money. I'd build and I'd do this and I'd do that and I, you know, whatever. And it came into fruition over a long time. It took years. And then originally the the plan for the sound was going to be, so, so just to go back for a second. So I took it from being this huge scale thing Mm -hmm. to, I, um, I guess I unpacked idea and I made it 12 helmets that were at a scale of a, you know, head that you could put your own head in there. And that the whole structure I made was 18 feet wide by, um, maybe nine, 10 feet off the floor and, and nine feet deep. And then it became this phalanx of these helmets. So a couple things there. So all the time, initially I was thinking about creating an electronic music kind of piece because I was working in max MSP and I was working in these software programming things, Mm -hmm. programs. And again, as part of the evolution, I realized, well, it's ahead. It should, it should be vocal. So eventually I recorded seven vocalists and then I then composed it from those, from that vocal recording. And, uh, there's 27 minutes of that.
0: Does the set 27 minutes, does it loop or does it just stop and then start again?
1: It does not loop. It is playing through a software program called Super Collider. Okay. And what that does is it, it doesn't randomize it. You could do that with Super Pleasure, but it doesn't do that. It's written with a set of parameters so that each song or sound event, um, and there are 10 of them, is played pretty much the way I've composed it Uh. but it it doesn't always play exactly Hmm. and also it moves in two different helmets completely differently so if you listen to it for 27 minutes in the next 27 minutes those sounds would be in different helmets so there's play in it and it's not a
0: direct loop Basically, what you're saying is that it almost randomizes am I or is that too kind of a strong a word to use?
1: It's not exactly randomizing. Okay. randomizing would be different. Um, okay. That's a different parameter different function, but okay. it it has um play and looseness in it. And and it, it has parameters of which you know like am I going to program it so it moves in a more circular or oh, oval type shape or okay. forward and backwards or more you know you know right. staccato or triangulated between the helmets and things like that but but the the generally the 27 minutes does kind of begin to replay it's not not exactly. It's not going to be what it was 27
0: minutes ago, but it's going to be something, you know, it's going to be the same but different in different places.
1: It's basically going to be more, you know, yeah, that's right. It's going to be adhering to strong parameters that keep it, you know.
0: That's actually a, that's pretty awesome. (laughs) I like that idea. Yeah. So, um, sorry, I'm looking at my notes. Yeah, get it. All right, well, so then how does a person stimulate a conversation for change?
1: I think... I, you know, that question that you asked me, I mean, prompted me to think about that. And I think you create a proposition, hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, put it out there. I mean, no artist can ever assume that anything they do will change anything. I mean, it's hard enough. I mean, frankly, you know, half of the population of the U.S. is like, okay, we're going to get a vaccine. Because guess what? We have mountains of data. And the other half is going, well, I don't know. Uh, is this, you know, a microchip that's being implanted into me in nano
2: yeah. size?
1: I mean, you know, whatever. But you know, yeah. I'm being okay, hyperbolic. But <laughs> so you can't you can't expect anything that you do will ever have any kind of real effect on anyone. Hmm. However, having said that, I myself have been radically changed by things I've seen, heard, felt, experienced. So Somewhere along the line, somebody's work is going to affect somebody, right? Right, I mean, right,
2: because you, know, you, you run reach... into a
1: piece of music or and you're just you stop in your tracks, yeah. As simple as walking past a shop window and you see a beautiful design and you're stopped and you're, you're arrested in your tracks, you see a painting that somehow never spoke to you, but wow, today man, has it got your attention. Or you see a film and you're just profoundly moved. Right. I mean, people do get moved by creative endeavors. You get moved by smelling the roses or seeing a beautiful flower. You know, there are things that do cross over and take us out of our little, our blinder zone. Right. And... Not everyone, by any means, is going to respond to what I do. There are plenty of people who don't like what I do. However, having said that, there are artists that I didn't like, and now I love them. And it took me years to get with the program or to get the nuance or to go, whoa, wait a minute. yeah, That is so interesting. So, you know, it's a crapshoot. You throw it out there. I hope that it asks enough questions that, it starts a conversation in somebody's head
0: or Mm -hmm. in their
1: being or that totality and then maybe it sneaks up on them and there's a little moment of shift and any kind of shift is a new neural connection and new neural connections are huge and they never stop until we die that's true we can keep creating new neural pathways until we croak and that's powerful
0: (laughs) that is powerful
1: hugely powerful
0: and I like the term that you use, croaked, because <laughs> that's yeah. true. Yeah, that, that's. Yeah. I like how because I know we talked a, a moment ago about sending it out there into the world and see what happens. But you know, you you hope for the best for it, and I yep. do find that very. Uh, it, it resonates with me because it does make sense where you know you just have to do it and there might be one person out there who will get it but that's all you need in in some cases that's all you need
2: right
1: right i mean there's a lot of validation if you have a conversation where someone and you sense that the two of you are on a similar page Mm -hmm. or that you resonate with certain ideas and we don't have to be validated by everyone all the time or and it's okay for people to not like my work or somebody else's work or whatever but right I just think exchange is really important and of course that's what we're in dire need of in this country at the moment which we're suffering from madly at the moment of yeah. not having decent conversation and exchange mm-hmm. and we're so in the process of othering everyone that it's scary to me yeah and I just I will say at this moment on that When I made Wappenfield, I put every helmet at one height because, you know, it's not fair to smaller or taller people. I know that. If everyone reads this at one level, there's a certain kind of collective that comes into being from that, right? Right. And I wanted people to think about what we have in common with one another as opposed to everything that divides us. Right. And interestingly enough, You know, 10 years later or 12 years later, we live in such an antagonistic society right now. Medical doctors want to leave their profession because they can't take it anymore. Yeah. You know? And I mean, the society is pretty strained right now.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I I can't can't think of anything else to compare it to because you're right. It is so strained right now.
1: Right. We're really in danger of hitting civil war and other things. And I hope that doesn't happen. because. We're human beings in the end. I mean, basically, people have to eat, sleep, go yeah. to the bathroom. People want to love their children.
0: Yeah, basic survival They're... mode stuff, right. right? And and everything right. else can fall off into the off to the sides, and
1: right. you know, right. And they want to live with a little bit of integrity,
0: right? Yeah, and respect, and And, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. and it's it's really tough right now because no one wants to listen to each other, you know. Nope. Nope. you ha- you just have to keep talking and eventually they'll start listening which kind of goes back to you just have to put it out there you know to kinda, yeah let's
1: hope so yeah let's hope so yeah. you know I mean let's hope so
0: it seems like uh we're kind of touching on this already but um, what are some of your current and past themes in your work
1: the current project I'm working on is called murmur mutter yell and okay. it's a definitely a sound piece it may have video and it may just not Mm-hmm. That is to be determined, definitely light. And that is that is about data mining and how all of us are being colonized. And we are willingly giving over our data daily in droves. And that makes us the raw material for somebody else's fantastic bank account, yeah. not just Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yeah. You know, he being an extreme example of that. So that's that's a real concern of mine. and. I'm not going to say a lot more about that. That that'll show as a work. Yeah, we don't want to give
0: December. Yeah, we say we don't want to give away too much. You know, yeah. we just yeah. want to give a taste. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. so we talk about Wappenfield, and you kind of already answered this question. So uh, this one might be kind of an easy one to answer. Then uh, for Wappenfield, uh, how did you go about choosing elements for that piece, like the helmets, the sound? Uh, you, know, you kind of talked about that already, or walked through it.
1: Right. I mean, I the helmets were just. I don't know, bing, they were right there. Yeah. And as I said, I made two samples of it in my studio. I worked with a friend who knew how to do um, three-dimensional rendering. And then I just built out the room exactly the way I wanted it. Yeah. And it was great. I mean, you know, I did one circular formation and then I did the phalanx and I settled rather immediately on that frontal assault kind of phalanx. And then, you know, I just knew that, I knew how the lights were going to go. I mean, I just I just saw it. And so then I went about trying to make it. I had to figure out how to build those helmets. Yeah. I mean, it was going to cost a fortune. And I knew that because I had a lot of experience with metal. So I kept cannibalizing things. And uh, one day I thought, fire extinguishers, that's the shape. That's what I need. So I called. Wow. Exactly. I was cannibalizing stuff all summer long. I'd bring them home and they were funky things. And, you know, my husband would just go, yeah, whatever. and. I contacted two fire extinguishing companies and one guy was great. The man was so nice to me and he sent me different sizes and asked me which one did I want. And then he sent me 18 fire extinguishers of the scale that I asked for.
0: Wow. That's yeah, awesome.
1: Seriously. Wow. Andy you magnificent man. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, really. Um, and so I, and at that point, I already had a pattern. I had all the dimensions. I had everything correct about what I wanted to do. And bing, everything fell into place. I had to cut the, the little, you know, the eye portal in there. And right. I had to replumb it because it, I had to fill it in and then replumb where the center was because, of course, the whole thing tipped forward.
2: Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: it's sculpture, right? Everything is gravity. So the whole thing tipped forward because you know the back was open, and but it was long on the front. Anyway, so that that's how that got done. Then I had to research, you know, which lights and and how I would hang them and how I would build the structure. And you know, there was like a lot of moving parts in this thing. But you know, eventually it all came together.
0: And, yeah, uh, and it's yeah. fantastic. I mean, I unfortunately wasn't there to to actually experience it, but I, I wish I was. Okay. But will uh, be up
1: again sometime. I don't know when.
0: Well, then I got to make sure to to go see it because it it is pretty cool looking at the pictures and videos and stuff that I've seen of it. It's like, yeah, I got to go through that and experience it. Because like you just said earlier, if you have it changing out every 27 minutes, it's almost like you want to come back and then see where, you know, earlier I heard it from this helmet, but now it's over this helmet. Right,
1: right. Right.
0: That would be a a pretty cool experience.
1: Yeah. And it really sneaks up on you and it's meant for you to move around.
0: Hmm. It's really,
1: I want people to walk around it and experience it. But, you know, you think, okay, it'll be here. Oh, but no, then it's there. And, you know, every time I try to capture the sound, it's never where I think it is. It's already moved, you know? I mean, and and there's usually a few helmets playing at the same time, but it's amazing when somebody's standing in a helmet and then it'll whisper to them or it will come right into the helmet at that moment and people are just, it's talking to me. You know, I mean, they have this incredible experience because suddenly it's, totally personal you know well, and you're in there as if you're in your own cone
0: ah yeah right? see that that would be the thing yeah yeah right
1: and i have had people who because it took me so many years to build um i've had you know colleagues and artists come you know who'd seen the rendering of it for like years and then they finally like and like this is completely different than i thought it would be and i'm like
0: Yes, that's actually no, a cool sure. thing. Yeah,
1: That's exactly what you want. So it's a surprise for them, even though they thought they knew it. It's a surprise for me. Yeah. Usually a good work for me is one that completely surprises me and ideally does that for other people.
0: Right. No, I that is actually valid. Yeah, because sometimes, you know, you're like, well, I don't know if this is going to work out. And it's like, oh, it worked out completely different than I thought it would. Oh, this is, yeah, I can completely get that. Yeah.
1: And sometimes if something works out differently, that's a great thing.
0: Right. Especially for the good.
1: (laughs) Right. Exactly. Sometimes something happens that you hadn't like, you know, you hadn't logically gotten there, but there it is. And it's a beautiful thing.
0: Right. So I want to kind of pivot now and talk about one of your uh, more recent video pieces that you have done. And I wanted to know uh, when you made the piece. Yeah. Who did you have in mind when you made Crossing the Firewall?
1: So I wanted to make that piece for probably at least five years, if not longer. Oh, wow. And I just didn't have time. I mean, I'm a band of one. Yeah. So I have to do everything. I can relate to that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm filming. I'm setting up the camera. I'm doing it. I'm performing. I'm editing it. You know, you name it. So I have to do everything. So I'm like writing the grants, et cetera. So I just did not get around to it. And I had started it in... 2018. I think I'd thought about it by 14 or 15. But when COVID happened, you know, I wasn't going to my studio as much because I had to take the subway for 40 minutes out there, right? Right. So I brought all my digital equipment home. So I have a little command center here now. <laughs> um and um I said, Well, you know, I can make this film. Plus it was feeling pretty urgent. We were seriously under the tyranny of Mr. Trump. Oh yes. As I really appreciate Biden calling him the former, yeah. <laughs> um, um, and that piece, the bit that I had worked on, was a bit of Trump, and I had I really felt strongly that that America thinks of itself as exceptional. You know, we have this term gets bandied about a lot, and Americans really think of themselves as an exceptional culture. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing, and I don't say this, I say this with real regret, that I think we have been watching that exceptional notion that we have of ourselves come off part by part for the last 20 years heavily. Yeah, We've always had a very complicated foreign policy where, forgive me, but I do think that we've made a lot of deals with the devil.
0: Oh, yeah. You won't be the first person to say that to me.
1: Right. And we've done that for decades. And I grew up in Europe from 14 to 23. So I got a real window on America from the outside. Yeah. And I think I'm as patriotic as any other American. So when I, when I say these things, it hurts me to the bone. But I really think that we have these, and we have these movies that we made, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, like, well, we wouldn't have done that. Right. You know, we're the good guys. We came and saved your ass. What the fuck? I mean, we wouldn't have done that. Right. Well, We did. We do. You know, we did Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's true. We did Vietnam. We did Iraq and Afghanistan. We have done all sorts of stuff. Yeah. We taught people, South American governments, how to interrogate their populations in the 1970s. So we have a lot to, I think, be aware of. And I just thought that using films that were well-known out there could be a very good way to use the heroic moments of the film, but also kind of show where we're failing and kind of intersplicing it with the inauguration day of Donald Trump. Right, yeah. Clearly Chuck Schumer, when he's up there speaking as the Democratic voice, is saying, I give everything in my being for this country, and he knows... What's going to go down? We all know that day what's going to go down. And the previous presidents from Bush and his wife to Obama and Michelle to the Clintons, they are so upset. You can see how upset they are. Mm -hmm. They're so nervous. They can't believe they're handing over the reins, but they are because this is what America does.
0: That's
2: right.
1: And it's what Roy Blunt says we do. And then where's Roy Blunt four years later when we're about to hand over the reins to um, Biden? A little MIA. Yeah. A little missing in action. And it's like, listen, pal, you need to live by your words. Okay? You're a politician. Yeah. And politicians are either, I'm not going to say it,
0: (laughs) very low level human beings. That's fine. Okay. Or they
1: need to live up to their promise.
0: Right. It's as simple as if you say you're going to do something, do it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, and you're there ostensibly representing us. So anyway, right. that's a whole other topic. But I really felt that shortly after 9-11, I stood with a friend on the street corner after, you know, at the end of an evening, and we both said, this American patriotism thing is getting a little creepy. Yeah. And and we both felt literally like in the fall of 2001 that it was going to take us to really funky places. And here it is. And here we are, yeah. And I just felt that, yeah, that, that that little film needed to be made. I took out one part of it, which I often think I need to go back and put it back in. Right. And maybe it'll make it a stronger film. And I think I will go ahead and do that because I've always felt it was, once I took it out, it was missing. Hmm. So, but that was my thinking about making that. I don't know whether it comes across to you or not that way.
0: Well, when I watched it, it really did make me feel like that you were doing a contrast in comparison to back to 2016, and previous to that, that was a horrible election year. And then you have this exceptionalism that was going on. And it was like, well, it was kind of like, are we trying to hold up a candle to what? That's kind of what my thinking or approach was when I watched it.
1: Mm. So w- w- when you say hold up a candle to what, what's the what there?
0: Oh, well, the what is is like, you know, uh, all these ideas that we have, like we're supposedly, but, you know, idealistically right. with, uh, you know, we're fair and just and... We're right. not, you know, right. you know, right. that was, that was what right. I, what I mean by that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So uh, I'm going to kind of shift over to another uh, more of a, I think it's of an opinion uh, ph- philosophical type of question. Yeah. And, and I have often thought about this, not just with, or I'll ask the question, uh, does sound and or a video piece lose some of its intended meaning if it's taken out of the gallery environment, you know, how or why?
1: So I think, I think it may be harder for people who are less fluent with certain ideas or formal and plastic languages mm-hmm. to recognize what they're looking at if it's out of a gallery context. And I, so I do think that the context brings something to the table. But I also think that if a work of art is really solid or it has integrity encoded into it, mm-hmm. that people are going to see that. They're going to feel it. They're going to they're gonna know it. I mean, if you stop in the subway and somebody's doing a killer music performance, and you have no idea who this person is. But if they're good, you're going, damn. They're good. These guys are not chops. These yeah. guys are good. Whoever it is. And I, I do think that that's probably true. The issue about installation art, of course, is that in the context of a room whether it's a gallery or, you know, some abandoned building that you've been allowed to use, it does provide a space container that allows you to set things up the way you want. Right. Right. Which is usually a large part of the success of the piece. So for example, showed a work once and the space was too small for it. You know, I did it Mm -hmm. and I pulled it off. But the moment I walked in, I was like, it's going to be too small. Yeah. And it, Didn't work as well as it would have had I had more space for the speakers as well as the images. But that said, so space does affect things, there's no question. And obviously the moniker or the seal of approval of a museum even more so than, of course, you know, a commercial gallery. But yeah, I mean, those things lend themselves to it. As you know, I mean, you can go on an art gallery and there's lively conversation amongst artists about what's crap, what isn't good, what's this, what's that, you know, I mean, and then so artists are not getting, you know, like, well, just because it's a, a Gagosian, you know, it's good.
0: Yeah, I mean,
1: we'll yeah. have a lively conversation about that. So, So I think it's a mixed combination, but, you know, yeah
0: one of the reasons why I asked that question was, you know, cause looking at your work, it's like yours, is, it's on the website, you know, some of the video and audio stuff you've right. done. And oh yeah.
1: It loses something by being two dimensional. It loses a huge amount by being two dimensional.
0: Right. Yeah. At the same time, it's like sometimes the work should be intended to be where it's at is, is oh, totally. what the feeling is. But I think you kind of made a great argument for that in a sense, like if you're in the subway and you hear a fantastic band performing, you could have had them, Anywhere in a club, in a stadium, anywhere. In, it, it's anywhere. It, at that point. It's the content, or it's what they're doing. They're producing. So right. that, that right. kind of changed, shifted my view on that when you said that. So
1: oh, good. I also really personally resent the at least ten to twenty year fashion of giving you the wall text and telling you what it means and telling you exactly how to unpack its meaning. Yeah. I personally really loathe that because I think the work should do its work. I think the artwork should stand independent of you having any kind of information about it. And then if you are more interested, you can go back and get more information about it. But I really am a believer in that the experience of the object should communicate itself.
2: Hmm. It's
1: in a language that has grammar, you know, I mean, visual grammar is different than, Spoken linguistic grammar, but that's true. You know, music has a grammar. Whatever you know, I mean, these things communicate themselves in ways that I think we should allow ourselves to uh, give people more of an opportunity to to discover works by themselves yeah. instead of serving them this thing up on the platter. And sometimes. That wall text tells you that something is something, and you're looking at it. And you're going, but it's an impoverished, horrible object, and none of that was communicated to me. You're telling me that it means this, but where is that located?
0: Right. Yeah. Now,
1: either I'm just not sensitive enough to get it, and that could easily be the case periodically, for mm-hmm. sure, because not everything resonates with us, each one of us. And sometimes it's like, well, you're you know, you're just saying it's good because the the artist told you it meant X, but if the thing doesn't communicate any of X to you through its intrinsic being. I think that's a problem.
0: Yeah. No, and you're that right. Could be
1: being old school. Does it have to be old
0: school? You know, because I, I, I think you're you have a valid point there because you know you have uh, uh, you use symbols like you said it's a language you know and if you don't help a viewer and or yourself you know uh, create and make a, a, a visual dialogue then it will get lost. Yeah.
1: And it doesn't have to be symbols. I mean, you could just be putting pieces of tape on the wall in sections artfully on the wall so it makes you aware of what's inside of those pieces of tape. This negative space on the outside of that tape, Mm -hmm. it might make you read the space or the wall or the room differently than you would have. Somebody might, I once put pieces of tape under window things. I you know, I had a huge space that I did a project in and I just tried to point out the banality of the room and yet bring other ideas in at the same time. Yeah. So the things that your eye just like immediately throws away because you know, you're processing information all the time. But yeah, it's a window. Okay, fine. Well, maybe there's something that I might want to notice about that. And if you just give it a little touch, There's an awareness. Right. And so I think it could take very little for an artist to sometimes formally tease out things that you're normally just throwing information out of your mind. And maybe it will just make you pause. Yeah. And look. Yeah. You know? So it doesn't have to be symbolic at all. I mean, literally, it could just be a piece of tape. Well. Intentionally put, could be interesting.
0: Right. Because like you said, it's like it's just a, a short jarring or just a little nudge. And it's all mm-hmm. you need to take. And then it does help a person start to figure that out. Yeah.
1: Like, for example, major shout out to Robert Irwin, who I think is one of the top 20th century artists. My husband and I were in San Diego years ago. We'd never been to the museum. And we go upstairs and we walk into this room. And I'm like, this has to be Robert Irwin. Something yeah. is different about this room. Yeah. I don't know what it is yet. It's got to be Robert Irwin. And then, like, he took the windows out of the frames. Unbelievable.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Insanely simple gesture that you could probably only do in San Diego because they have the right weather conditions, right?
0: Right. They, they, they and it
1: was huge. The moment I walked in the room, I was like, something's different.
0: Yeah. Wow. That actually ends the interview. That's a pretty uh, bang right there you left with the interview. <laughs>
1: I think I would just add one other thing. Um,
0: please do. And we
1: haven't We haven't touched on soul junk, but yes. that piece is a, a sound and video work.
2: yes and
1: where the sound is very sculptural and three-dimensional and I've been working with that idea for many, many years now. Yeah. and murmur mutter yell also works with that idea. but that piece was a direct outcome of Wappenfield, which is the helmets. And that piece is very raw and it's a, it explores entirely other issues, but it also continues to look at those things when you ask what are the themes that keep coming up and keep right. continuing is vulnerability as opposed to armor, psychological. So those things continue with my work.
0: Hmm. So hence, you know, soul junk. It's like yeah. you, you start adding just junk to to the soul.
1: Yeah. Oh. Or what is the junk of the soul? What's all the stuff that, comes out
0: or right yeah because it it, it does open up a lot of questions right there like you said you know by even thinking about it are you making yourself vulnerable to it you know that kind of thing yeah well thank you for doing this then uh thank you very much i appreciate it and i learned a lot and oh
2: well
0: cool um
1: thank you very much
0: no no like i said it's all all you thank you I want to say thank you to Michelle for taking the time to do the interview. If you want to learn more about Michelle and her work, go to our website at michellejeff.com. She's also on Instagram at michellejeffart. To hear this episode and past episodes of ArtboxDNV, head over to the website at artboxdnv.com. ArtboxDNV is also on Instagram at artboxdnv. So, until next time, thank you for listening.